I have uh, in my bachelor's degree, I, I studied business administration. And in business school, one of the ways that you learn is you do case studies. You take a particular company or organization, you look at a case study, you figure out what happened in that particular situation. When I was in school, the case studies, uh, the biggest case study was on a company some of you might remember named Enron. Y'all remember Enron? Enron was a catastrophic collapse of its day. I don't remember all of the details of that case study, um, but I do remember there were some warning signs. And someone who knows what to look for could see the warning signs coming before most people could. It's a way of looking at a real-life scenario and seeing how does it unfold and learning the lessons from that so that you don't have to learn them the hard way later on. But case studies can also be a good thing. It can be a way of analyzing something good that's happened and why has it happened that way? What is What has made it work so well? And what lessons could I learn? Today I want us to look at a case study in forgiveness. A case study that teaches us that no matter how far away from God we are, Christ can and is willing to forgive us. Our case study is found in Luke chapter 7. Verses 60, uh, 36 through 50 give us the full story. And we're going to look at all those verses. But for just a moment, I want us to read the beginning of the story. So stand with me as we read from Luke 7, verses 36 through 39. This is God's Word. And if you let it, it will change your life. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Pray with me. Father, may your word change us. May it not sit stagnant in our ears or in our brains, but may it make haste directly into the center of our hearts. Drill it down deep into the depths of our souls and change us from the inside out. Father, this is your time. Use your word as you see fit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A case study in forgiveness. We have in this story a story of a woman who experienced forgiveness. Now, let me let you know up front, the story you're about to hear, read, is true. This isn't a parable. This isn't something that Jesus made up. It contains a parable. He does teach in a parable in this passage, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But this is a genuine story, a true story. This is not one of those things that somebody made up along the way. This isn't something that someone said, we need a way to illustrate the idea, so let's come up with something. This isn't Luke trying to give credence to this idea of Jesus being God. 
This is Luke doing the hard work of investigation and finding out a true story. Now, there's a couple of stories that are like this. We shouldn't be surprised. Where someone comes and anoints Jesus and treats Him with overwhelming love and affection. We shouldn't be surprised because this is Jesus we're talking about. In fact, what should surprise us is that we don't have more stories of this. We have probably three in the Gospels. Why We should have 30 or 300 or 3,000. This should be happening all the time. But in our case study of forgiveness, we see that not many have experienced the forgiveness that this woman has experienced. And so we don't see this happen very often, but boy, is it powerful when we do. Jesus is performing miracles. He's teaching. He's drawing large crowds. He's gathering great attention. And part of that attention would have come from a group of religious leaders, a religious elite known as the Pharisees. If you take, well, let's just say this, okay? If most of us play backyard football, the religious elites, the Pharisees would have been the pro football hall of famers when it come to fulfilling the law. They would have been the ones who had excelled at it so far above everyone else that you just look at them and scowl because of their reputation of holiness. Not real holiness. I mean, they didn't actually really love people. They just said they did. And boy, did they say it. They proclaimed it. And boy, they loud when they proclaimed it. Everybody had to know when they were fasting. Everybody had to know when they were giving. They made big announcements about it. Partly because they wanted to be seen as righteous. Partly because they wanted to feel like they were righteous. The Pharisees would have been paying special attention to Jesus. In those days, um, there was this idea of hospitality. We don't have it quite in the same extent that they did. You even see it back in Genesis. I mean, this was an ancient tradition in the, in the Near East. Lot is in Sodom. These two men come to Sodom. And Lot invites them into his house. He sees them out in the town square. And he's like, why don't you come eat with me? No, 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 we wouldn't want to impose. And it's back and forth. Yes, let me, let me, let me, let me provide for you. Let me give you food. Let me take care of you. Here, stay the night. Why don't you stay the night at my house? It was a sign of genuine holiness to be hospitable to someone. In fact, it was part of the law. The law said that when there's a stranger, when there's a sojourner, you take them in and you care for them. Remember how you were sojourners in Egypt? Remember when God brought you out of the land of slavery and you didn't have a home for 40 years? Remember that? Remember when your fathers were wandering around in the wilderness? Without a place to live, you take care of the sojourner in your midst. That was the law. And it would have been common in those days for people, especially well-known people like teachers, traveling teachers, to be invited to come in and eat a meal in someone's house. It wasn't just being friendly. It was part of the cult. It's just something you did. So it's no surprise that a Pharisee would invite Jesus to dine in his home with him. In fact, I imagine that probably every day Jesus got an invitation to come dine with somebody. Rare would have been the time that he wouldn't have been invited anywhere. Luke speaks of three separate occasions where Pharisees invited Jesus into their homes. That's not even including non-Pharisees like 
Zacchaeus and others. So Christ finds himself sharing a meal at the Pharisee's house. Now, the story tells us, Luke tells us, that there's this woman. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought the alabaster flask of ointment. For just a minute, a minute I think we need to, I think we need to get the gravity of what's happening in the story. That phrase, a woman of the city who is a sinner, that's a nice way of putting it. She had a bad reputation. This was no Mother Teresa, and everybody knew it. Just to show her face in the house of this Pharisee would have subjected her to scorn and ridicule, to rebuke and disdain. After all, she, of all people, would have most certainly been unclean. So how is it that this woman becomes a case study in forgiveness? How could a woman so vile be so completely absolved of her inordinate amounts of guilt that she rightfully bore on her shoulders? How does she become the example of forgiveness? Luke tells us what happens in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when she came, she broke all the rules. Just being a woman in the presence of men and expressing herself at all would have been taboo. But the very first thing she does, just approaching him as an uninvited guest, approaching the guest of honor at a banquet, that was a big no-no. She didn't have a place there at the table. There was a place for her. There were benches along the wall that she could have sat in. Better yet, not even being in the house might have been what many would have considered the appropriate place for her. Go somewhere else, you sinner. And then, as if that's not enough, she approaches Jesus. She can't get to his head. The way they, the way they sat at the table, they didn't sit at the table. They laid at the table. The table would have been, I don't know, maybe this high, and they would have laid on cushions on the ground and eaten. So she can't get to his head. She can't get close to that, but she can get to the feet. And so she decides. I don't think she decided. I think she just was overwhelmed. She begins crying all over his feet, cries enough to wash them. And then she does something else that's a big no-no. No self-respecting Jewish woman would untie her hair, not in public. And yet, here come the locks. And she's using them in place of a towel to dry her tears off of Jesus' feet. By the way, I'm sure those tears came from realization of her own sin. How could she not know? Everyone else knew it, and they sure weren't afraid to tell her. She dries them with her hair. Then she makes another faux pas. Some of these things... We have to kind of get in a first century mindset to understand this one you don't. This one today, this one today you wouldn't even think of doing. She kisses his feet. There's a Greek word in the text here. Ew. <laughs> There's just no other way to put it than gross. Who would kiss another person's feet? That's just as sounding as all that was. Then she takes the flask and she puts the ointment on his feet, to anoint them. Your virgin might have perfume or fragrant oil, 
they all use the same word in Greek, so it could have been any of those things. What would drive a woman to do all this? What would drive anyone to go through these kinds of links? Verse 39, the Pharisee, well, he does what Pharisees do. Now, when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He degrades her actions and questions whether Jesus really could be a prophet. I mean, after all, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he sure wouldn't let her touch him. She's a sinner. And was the Pharisee correct? Yes, he was a sinner. But you see, here's the great thing. Here's the great thing about God. That doesn't matter. The fact that she is such a sinner, has such a bad reputation that they can't even directly talk about her sin, they have to talk about her using innuendo. The fact that her sin is so bad that everybody knows it and she's got such a terrible reputation doesn't prevent her from coming to Christ. I'm going to repeat what I said at the beginning. No matter how far away from God you are, Christ is willing and able to forgive you of your sins. This is what makes this a case study in forgiveness. This woman has found forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. The same place we find forgiveness. The same place that we find that we can be forgiven of our most heinous acts is at the feet of Christ. We don't get that forgiveness anywhere else. We find it at the foot of Christ. So maybe, maybe the first thing we can learn about forgiveness from this case study is where we find forgiveness. We find it in Christ. We don't find it in the things that we're doing. This woman, I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead a bit. Okay, so, so hold off on the PowerPoint for a second. Verse 50, look at verse 50. And he said to the woman, this is the very end of the story, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Is it her works that save her? Is it the things that she does for his feet that save her? No, her faith has saved her. But her faith has been demonstrated in her works. Let me make something very clear. And let me make sure that we put this in the right place. This is not a story of how this woman is a hero. This is a story about how Christ is the hero. Christ has taken a sinful woman, a woman of the city, a woman that you can't even talk about how bad she is directly, and He has made her forgiven. You, you, okay, y'all didn't catch that. Let me, let me try again. How can I put this? I want to I make sure you get just how incredible this is. Think in your mind of the vilest person you can conceive. If the picture in your mind is not yourself, maybe you got some soul searching to do. Because my picture was me. No dictator. No, no person of horrible reputation. No vile, wretched human being in history. My picture was me. And I hope your picture was you. At least you before Christ. If you have not experienced the fullness of God's forgiveness, you are the vilest person you've ever met. And if you're willing to admit that, i got good news for you. You're well on your way to being forgiven. You see, this woman knew she was a sinner. She knew it. Everybody knew it. And yet she came 
broken over her sin, and she found forgiveness. Now, what's interesting about what she does is that these are works that you do, these are things that you do after you've been forgiven. I don't mean just washing people's feet or drying them with your hair or, or anointing their feet or kissing them or whatever. I, that, that, that's not. This is the kind of thing you do when you value another person, especially God in human flesh, so much that it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what it costs you. It doesn't matter what links you have to go to to do it. You are willing to do anything and everything to show value to the one whom you value most. These are the actions of a forgiven woman. Not of one who was seeking forgiveness, but one who had obtained it. Maybe those tears weren't tears over the brokenness of her sin. Maybe they were tears of gratitude for the forgiveness of being made whole and righteous before God. I don't know. Luke Luke doesn't tell us. Here's what I do know. Christ does what He does best. Faced with a woman who is demonstrating genuine repentance... And a Pharisee got a clue what he's saying. He teaches. Look in verse 40. Now we can go back to the PowerPoint. Thank you, Nicole. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. I want you to picture a guy. He's got these two men that owe him. One owes him 500 denarii, the other 50. Let me put that in today's terms. If you were to minimum wage... For today, seven twenty-five an hour, eight hours a day. A denarii would have been a day's worth of work for a laborer. Okay, that that would have been the value. So that's about fifty-eight dollars a day. One owes him two thousand nine hundred dollars. The other owes him twenty-nine thousand dollars. Okay, but I tell you what, let's go beyond that. You got to actually pay for stuff. You got to pay for food. You got to pay for housing. You got to pay for all that stuff, right? Neither one really makes it far, does it? I mean, you make $29,000 a year, you're struggling to make ends meet, right? That's a, that's a tough debt to pay back. Put yourself in that position. Either way, even the 50 would have been a lot to pay back. Even the $2,900 would have been tough to pay back. But can you imagine having to pay back the amount of money you would make in a year and a half? Think about that for a second. No wonder these people couldn't pay their debts, especially that one. Look in verse 42, what happens? When they could not pay. What what would normally happen if you could not pay a debt? You became a slave. This guy, instead of enslaving them, instead of putting them to the punishment that their debt deserves, he says, you know what? I'm canceling it. You don't owe me a thing. Then Jesus asked the question, now which one love him more? You ever been fishing? Jesus is fishing. That's, that's, that's the lure. Who's going to love him more? And there's the lure in the water. And you know what? The Pharisee bites. Verse 43, Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Got him. The bait has caught the fish. He said to him, You have judged rightly. Now that he has the bite, it's time to reel him in. You see, Jesus recognizes that the Pharisee doesn't doesn't know true repentance. Now, this may seem odd. How how does how does that story demonstrate repentance? 
How does this, how, how does this add up? How does God, how is God teaching us about forgiveness from just a couple of guys that have their debt canceled? From a woman who is lavishing all this attention to his feet while a Pharisee looks on in disgust. How does this story teach us forgiveness? Well, let's listen to what Jesus says. Verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. That is a simple past tense. Hospitality required that if you were going to welcome someone into your home, you would offer them or you would have a servant do this for them, but you would at least offer them water to wash their feet. That was bare minimum. Everyone would have been expected to do that. And there's two reasons for that. Number one is what I call the mama reason because mama don't want you tracking dirt in her house. The roads are dusty. There's all kinds of stuff on roads. Think about all the animals that travel roads and what animals do not always go to the restroom to do. That is all over the roads. I don't want your filthy feet walking around my house. I want to keep it clean. So there was a practical reason, but there was also this whole love your neighbor as yourself commandment. You know what Jesus called the second greatest commandment? If you're going to love your neighbor as yourself, can't you at least let them wash their feet off? Isn't that common decency? Tell our guests, kick off your shoes, stay a while. You know why we say kick off your shoes? Because we don't want them tracking mud in our house, but also because we want them to be comfortable. We want them to make themselves at home. We want them to feel like this is a place of rest. So kick off your shoes. Yeah, let me get your jacket for you. Let me make you comfortable. You didn't even bother doing that to me, Simon. But this woman... She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You can't hear this in the English as much, but in the Greek, it's a continual thing. It's the idea of an action that has been ongoing, of an action that hasn't just been offered once, but something that's been carried out. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss. This would have been the greeting. I showed it to Mitchell. It blew his mind that anyone would greet someone by kissing them on the cheeks. But you've seen where people kiss each other on both cheeks. That's the customary greeting. You didn't offer me a kiss. You didn't offer me a greeting, a welcome greeting. You walk into someone's home and they say, hey, what's up? It's not a welcoming greeting. Hey, it's so good to see you. Come on in. Come on in here. Here, you sit. You sit in this chair. This is a good chair. You sit right here. Can I get you anything? Can I get you water? Can I get you something? What can I do for you? It's nothing like that. He walks into Simon's house and Simon seems to care less. Couldn't care any less that Jesus was there. You gave me no kiss. You didn't even greet me at the door. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Do you see the difference? He didn't even offer it once. She hasn't stopped. Do you see the difference between the Pharisee and the woman? Do you see the contrast between the one who doesn't know repentance if it hit him in the face and the woman who is demonstrating it in everything that she's doing? Verse 46, You did not anoint my head with oil. It would have been dry, hot. The lime dust would have irritated the skin. Anointing your skin. Well, if you didn't anoint your skin... It would have been dried and cracked and 
Well, we use lotion today, but they used oil for that. You didn't anoint my head. And yet she has not stopped, the way the Greek reads, anointing my feet. Therefore I tell you, verse 47, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now we understand what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that when you come in repentance and you're demonstrating the works of a repentant heart, forgiveness is made complete. James said it this way, faith without works is dead. You know why? Because if it's going to be faith, it's got to be working. Faith that doesn't work is useless. It's, it's like, it's like a glove with no fingers. I pull out, um, I work in a restaurant. Every now and then I'll pull out a glove and they'll be missing a finger. <laughs> I can't use that glove. I got to throw it out and, and get another glove, right? Sometimes I'll pull it out and it rips as I'm pulling it out of the box because they think for some reason that they have to jam pack all the gloves into a box that's just barely too small. And so they like, so you try to grab one and either you grab 50 of them, rip a glove trying to pull it out. I can't use those gloves. I need it to be a whole glove. I need it to be a complete glove. Faith without works is like half of a glove. You cannot use it. It's worthless. Throw it away. It's dead. But faith with works. Faith that works. Faith that produces the works of repentance. Now that is a genuine faith. And that's the kind of faith that we experience through forgiveness. When we confess our sins to God and we admit to Him what we're doing wrong, when we say, God, I am a sinner. Please forgive me. When we turn away from our sin in repentance, it's a faith that produces the work. It's a faith that's real and living. It's a faith that makes the difference. It's a faith that results in forgiveness. This Pharisee who was fulfilling the duty of the law, not even really fulfilling, just fulfilling the duty of the law, was giving a half-hearted effort. He wasn't being hospitable. And yet this woman treats Jesus' feet. It reminds me of Isaiah 52.7, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. It's like she sees his feet and realizes he's bringing the good news. He's not even bringing the good news. He's bringing the best news. News of salvation. News of forgiveness of sins. See, the ones who need forgiveness the most are the ones who seek it most, and the ones who seek it most are the ones who value it most. This woman experienced forgiveness because she sought it. She was broken over her sins. She demonstrated sincere repentance through her action. As I said before, verse 50, it wasn't her actions that saved her. Your faith has saved you. But it was a faith that resulted in repentance. Is a faith made complete. Forgiveness came to this woman because she believed so much that she was willing to go to whatever lengths necessary to show it. Then there's the Pharisee. Everything this woman did to demonstrate true repentance, the Pharisee downplayed, degraded, and neglected to do himself. He's not just the one who loves little because he was forgiven little. He wasn't forgiven at all. He didn't love at all. Hmm. It's an interesting correlation, isn't it? He's the one who does not demonstrate true love for neighbor by not showing the hospitality that the sinful woman showed in great abundance. He doesn't know repentance, so he doesn't know forgiveness. Which one are you? Are you the Pharisee who won't repent 
and therefore won't be forgiven? Are you the woman who demonstrates her repentance and her love for the Master? Have you experienced forgiveness? Could we do a case study on your life and see how God has forgiven you? Have you become broken over the debt that you owe God? You know, all of us owe God. The debt that you could never possibly repay, He's offering you forgiveness. Will you repent of your sin and turn to Him? We pray for you. Father, as as we come to a time of invitation, I pray that you would invite us to experience the forgiveness that you offer. Such a wonderful grace, such a grace that is beyond measure, such a grace that is beyond comprehension, such a grace that we could never earn ourselves, that we could never experience apart from you. Father, it's not something that we can find under a rock. It's not something that we could discover in, in some formulas or or devise a plan to achieve, but it's freely given by you. A grace that is free to receive, but has been so expensive for you to offer. And all that you require of us is everything. Everything of who we are. All of our accolades, all of our sins. Who we are pales in comparison to what you offer. But Father, you don't offer it just for us to attach on to our lives and Go about doing what we're doing. God, you offer us forgiveness through repentance. You're the one that tells us if we repent of our sins, you'll forgive us. So Father, I pray this morning that those who have not known you, those who have not experienced your grace would do that today. And those that have would live in light of your forgiveness, would demonstrate their faith through their works that they may be case studies in forgiveness. They may be examples of what you can do. Father, this is your time. You lead and we'll follow. In Christ's name, amen.